When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, writers. Thank you for tuning in for the first episode of our summer favorite series featuring Nana Kwame Ajebrenya and Ana Reyes. This week, we're celebrating and honoring high-stakes fiction with two writers whose books we felt pushed the limits of fiction and made us think more critically about complex topics that wiggle their way into readers' hearts and souls. And in Nana Kwame Ajebrenya's Chain Gang All-Stars, which is about two top women gladiators fighting for the freedom within a very depraved private prison system, not too far removed from our, from our own right now, um, among other things. And then in, in Ana Reyes's The House in the Pines, um, readers are treated to a psychological thriller that pushes up against what we think we know about the power of the mind. So, Brooke, I know there have been a few books in the past year that you've commented upon for the way they made you think. And of course, we, we chose those two. But are there others you want to give shout outs to? Yeah, thanks for asking that question, because I love Jinu Chong's debut novel, Flux. I thought it was smart and relevant. And it was the first book in a long while that had kept me up late because I didn't want to stop reading. Uh, on the memoir side of things, I loved Eden Bourdreau's Crying Wolf. Uh, and I'm always looking for a book that touches me, makes me think more deeply, or that makes me see things from a different perspective. Uh, and today we're celebrating this idea of high stakes, what we're calling high stakes. Um, and we're honoring those two novels, like you said, although there are so many others, but not because memoirs don't have high stakes, Grant, they do. Uh, but let's talk about what we mean when we are talking about high stakes in fiction and why maybe high stakes does apply a bit more to fiction in this context. Yeah, I hope I hope memoir has high stakes. But yeah, fiction is definitely an interesting exploration in this realm. To me, High stakes refers to what's at, you know, at stake in the story and for the reader. And I think when we, we think of high stakes in memoir, it might refer to what's at stake for the writer, you know, what they stand to lose or sacrifice for telling their true story. In fiction, because of the, the protective veil of fiction, when a writer does something high stakes, it, it may be risky, but the truth the writer is telling tends to be more about a, a universal truth rather than a personal truth or a personal truth that's made universal on the page, you know, made into something else. So, so memoir can and should have universal truths as well, of course, but typically when it comes to fiction, the reader is projecting their thoughts and ideas, you know, whatever the stakes are onto the characters as opposed to onto the writer, him or herself. So I think that fiction is necessarily more high stakes you can go bigger i guess uh but how we think about what's at stake and how it's presented is invariably different yeah i i definitely agree with that and it's why it's such a luxury to be able to read across genres and think about these questions of what you take away from a book and what the impacts of the books that we read are on us and why do things stay with you? Uh, like for me, The House in the Pines struck me because of the protagonist. She had a deep conviction, a knowing like over the course of the whole book. And then she steps more and more into her courage to do something that she needs to do for herself, which is to right a wrong. And that has stayed with me all of these months. And that's just good fiction. It's good storytelling, you know? Um, and I'm curious, Grant, what would you say is the thing that stayed with you about Chain Gang All-Stars? 
Wow. So much. I mean, it's setting for one, you know, it takes place in a near future America where our already dystopian private prison system, you know, grows even more dystopian by creating a kind of you know, gladiator sport in which prisoners fight to the death for their freedom. So definitely, you know, the violence and the, just the, the injustice of, of the setting, I guess. And, you know, I've read comparisons of the novel to the, the Hunger Games, but this novel goes you know way further and it, by going further it's got some really incisive commentary on race incarceration and the violence that is often part of sports and entertainment so it's really confrontational that's what i take from it um and beyond that though the novel made me think a lot about art and activism because of our conversation with nana and you know i, I mentioned in the interview with him that a lot of the creative writing classes that i took when i was younger essentially discouraged writers from writing stories that were you know, overtly political because fiction isn't supposed to be didactic or that's the way it was taught. And, and uh, in talking with him, he, he talked about how this novel, you know, it's artistic, but it's also called action. And he talked about how art is love taking forms that we can perceive with our senses and activism is love motivating action, as he put it. And I love thinking about how love is at the core of both art and activism and how love can form an aesthetic. I love that too. And thanks for resurfacing some of those ideas. That was a, such a great interview. Uh, and as we kick off August, we do invite you all to consider what high stakes fiction you've read lately and what it made you feel, uh, what about it was high stakes. What were the questions at the heart of the book that made you think more broadly about the world we live in, our place in it, questions of morals and ethics and why people do what they do. And that, again, is just at the heart of good fiction. You know, these stories that invite us to dive in deeply um, to both the story and its substance. So that's what we're celebrating today, Grant. Yeah, I love that question that you asked, like to identify high, the high stakes fiction that you like and to think about what makes it high stakes, because some of us might write more muted kind of domestic dramas. But if that's your area of writing, think about what how you can make um, add some high stakes to that in itself or what your definition of that is. And I always say that you can feel the author's vulnerability on the page in the best of stories. And that's certainly the case with these two authors today. So we hope you enjoy these highlights from Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya and Anna Reyes. And if you want to listen or re-listen to the whole episodes, we invite you to do so by searching our archives or just plug in the title on Google. I'm excited to introduce Nana Kwame Ajay Brenya, who is the New York Times bestselling author of the short story collection Friday Black, and now the celebrated debut novel Chain Gang All-Stars. He was selected by Colson Whitehead as one of the National Book Foundation's 5 Under 35 honorees, and he is the winner of the Penn Gene Stein Book Award and was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle's John Leonard Award for Best First Book in the Aspen Words Literary Prize. He was also featured in a recent New York Times book review uh, column by the book, which I love, their interview series, and I recommend you Google that and look it up. Welcome, Nana. Thank you so much for having me. It's absolutely my pleasure. Chain Gang All-Stars takes place in a near future America where our already dystopian private prison system grows even more dystopian by creating a kind of gladiator sport in which prisoners fight to the death for their freedom. And I've read comparisons of the novel to The Hunger Games, but but your novel goes further uh, with some incisive commentary on race and incarceration and, and the violence that is often parts of sports and entertainment. So I'm curious if you could tell us more about where you got this idea from or just how it developed into a novel. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, it's hard to say exactly where, but I think the seed uh, for my interest in this system, the carceral system that is, 
came from many things. My father was a criminal defense attorney, and I've sort of spoken before about how um, he told me at a young age he was defending someone who had committed murder. And I remember feeling like, oh, wow, like, I guess my dad's a villain. He's a bad guy, helping a bad guy. And I don't know what I said, but I said something sort of making it clear that I disapproved or something, even as like 11-year-old or however old I was. And I remember him telling me it's not that simple. And I think that was an important seed that kind of got planted in me. Then as you grow up, you know, in America, I went to school. I feel like what was a maybe general cynicism of the criminal justice system grew into a much more acute disdain, probably, or like contentiousness after the murder of Trayvon Martin. I was activated in a certain kind of ways. I think many people my age were. And so I think I, as, that I'm a, I'm a writer, right? So I think as I'm working through writing stories, I'm figuring out what I care about in the world, what it means, what feels meaningful to me. And um, I felt very interested in the different systems that get us to forget each other's sort of communal humanity. And when I was working on my first book, Friday Black, I had an image or this idea for this woman in the eye of the arena. And I didn't know everything about her, but I was interested by, by her story. And I was thinking about how could someone be in the situation? Why is she in that situation? And pretty quickly I had sort of decided that she would have had to have been a criminal for so many people to watch her in this context, this sort of dehumanizing context and be okay with it. That led me to doing some research. And then I was like, uh Oh, I think I have more than what I can fit in a short story. And seven years later, here we are. Wow, Nana, that's uh, quite a journey there, the seven years from story to novel, and uh, it's just getting so much critical acclaim, which is awesome. And I love that you dedicate the book to your dad, and I wonder if you might say a little bit more about that. I mean, you said it, he said it's not so simple, but how did that continue to influence you and even your writing as you got older? Well, yeah, so my father, I, I dedicated the book to him. He passed a little bit after my first book came out. Uh, he had cancer. And um, I know that he felt some type of way that I dedicated my first book just to my mom, you know, so <laughs> I got that kind of let him get one. But in terms of uh, his influence, yeah, that's so like there's that initial seed. But then through my life, I know him as someone who defends people who many other people won't because he also dealt with a lot of people who didn't have a lot of funds, he, who didn't have a lot of access to like, money and some many people who were immigrants um, trying to fight being deported, things like this. And yeah, I just like by working with him, I just had like a very close up reminder that everyone's a human being and everyone's trying their best and people are struggling and sort of desperate. And it's really important to care about them and how you maintain that care can be really difficult because of there's so many different aspects of our society that trick us into or make us feel like it's in our best interest to not and I just like to push back against that in different ways I can, whether it's hyper-consumerism or racism, which I think are some of the things I focus on in my first book. I think this book, when I got into the carceral state, was like this. It's a really interesting, explicit lack of compassion that we have um, in, the, in the case of prisons. And it just felt important for me to sort of try to engage that. And I, I really do believe like a seed was planted in me, like without even me really realizing it with my father's work and who he was. But um, it also just felt feels like very naturally what I'm inclined to. 
Well, Nanda, going further with that, you know, when I was in taking creative writing classes, you know, the ones I took when I were, was younger, they, they essentially discouraged writing stories that were overtly political or activist in nature. You know, the, the classes focused on a, a sort of apolitical aesthetic and craft, which I now view as very misguided. And this novel... This is a novel that's artistic, but it's but it's also a call to action, I think. And I'm curious about your thoughts about the overlap between art and activism. I read a really nice definition from you that 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 art is love taking forms that we can perceive with our senses, and activism is love motivating action. And I love that. And I love thinking about how love is at the core of both art and activism, because with love at the core, harming anyone is an abomination, as you put it. Absolutely. And so that class you took, I feel like there's many classes that have a similar sentiment. And it's it's so complicated because I, I I truly wish I wish I took that class to really even know what they meant when they said it. Because it's, when people say apolitical, they mean so many different things. And some of them are more sinister than others. Like there's the people who are mad that Star Wars has quote unquote become political, even though it's called Star Wars. <laughs> and I'm like, what do you guys think war is? <laughs> and the Star Wars movies literally start with a political background manifesto about diplomats and senators. It's just insane. So that so those people, when they say, they, why are Star Wars so political? They're really just saying, I'm tired of seeing, I don't want to see a woman holding a lightsaber. That's what they're saying. There's a, but in terms of what you're talking about, there's like a, I try to be generous with those people as well. I think they're trying to say that good art should not operate like propaganda, right? And so what I hope that they're trying to say, and again, this is like sort of my generous reading of a, of a, of a kind of reductive approach to art making, is that you're not just giving someone an easy answer. You're presenting them, hopefully what you're doing with your art is presenting them with a complicated question. But as we know, the questions you ask and the, question, the things you choose to focus on, that is political in and of itself. Also, not even just getting to the fact of who even gets to make art in any particular time and space is also political. All Every aspect of our ability to thrive or move through spaces has political implications. So it's a great privilege to imagine that you are outside of that. Okay, so that said, I write what matters to me. <laughs> And it matters to me that we have a world where people are suffering greatly. I do think already we have a dystopic sort of society set up. I don't think it's right that the government has the infrastructure capacity and ability to murder people, its own citizens, and that feels bad to me. I also think that it fundamentally, prisons that is, and the carceral state fundamentally cut at the knees our ability to respond compassionately to several real issues like mental health crises or the disease of addiction. I know that the carceral state individualizes and criminalizes systemic issues like poverty. So when I hear people think that they like have would have like tried to not write about things that are political, the joke I used to say on my first book was, if the house is on fire, I'm not going to tell you about what I had in my fridge that day. I want to talk about the house that's on fire and the house has been on fire. And that's what I choose to write about. That's a great way to put it. I love that. Yeah, me too. And I also think there's something so telling when people say, you know, don't be political to people somehow about who we choose to keep down and who has the power to say those words in the first place. So thank you for that, Nana. And 
I want to talk a little bit more about the intersection of craft art and activism because Mm -hmm. you use footnotes in your novel and that's not very common. You rarely see it in fiction. (laughs) Uh, And some of them cite American legal documents and some are fictional. One cites the 13th Amendment. It's caveat that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude shall exist within the United States except as a punishment for crime. I didn't know about that latter qualification. So I wanted to ask you what your thinking was behind the footnotes and the role they play in the story. Um, thank you for the question. For me, I agree. Like footnotes aren't very, I don't know, are very sexy to have in fiction. And also for me, I also don't, I can't say I'm someone who like loved the idea of it initially because it breaks the fictive dream. And I was really interested in maintaining that, but I really wanted it to be almost impossible to, engage this book, which is a violent book outside of the context, which is sort of thinking about the real life carceral state of America. And so when I include some of these facts, well, sometimes I'm just like setting the world up. Sometimes I'm the footnotes are pretty dynamic. They allow me to almost eulogize people in the book, both real and fictional, because I, I, I like the idea of caring about every single person and in some way, extending them care as a way to sort of practice what I'm preaching, even in the fictive world. But um, with the 13th, for example, that um, which is getting more sort of notoriety because of uh, the Edward DuVernay film, that's an important fact that slavery is explicitly protected in our Constitution. Like I just think that's worth noting because it also sets up a paradigm for what our carceral state is. Because what is slavery? A state in which someone is reduced to like a property, uh, is reduced to like a commodity. Their humanity is overtly stripped from them. That being contained explicitly, it, 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 it manifests in the way, in the infrastructure and the way we approach the carceral state. And so that, that, that fact makes, means that changing all stars is not as like so crazy as you might think it is. It's, it's just the only re- to me, the conceit of the book is not that gladiators are fighting is that the carceral state would feel that we had become so desensitized to violence that they would release their ultimate trump card, which is obscuring the violence behind the walls. That to me, to me, that's the real conceit. Everything else is more just about a volume turning up or on, you know, I'm making the violence greater or bigger or more um, flamboyant, but that is explicit. So like that slavery thing is real. That's true. So yeah, to me, creating that context and uh, it gave me opportunities to point to all the different contradictions. This is, again, the land of the free that's explicitly trying to protect slavery in this constitution. Um, the young, So many people who have been murdered by the government unjustly, people who have spent decades and literal decades in solitary confinement, all the, way, the ways in which solitary confinement in and of itself should be understood as torture. And again, we're a nation that supposedly doesn't torture. It just gives me a, 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 the footnotes allowed me a space to sort of air out these grievances and these contradictions that are, this country ha- holds that allow this really loveless institution to thrive. In my opinion, taking that theme of violence and actually going outside the prison walls, but in some ways it's a different kind of prison. You know, I was thinking while I read this that as a sports fan, 
I'm conflicted anytime I actually watch a sport like football these days. I couldn't, and I, and, and I couldn't help but thinking uh, how the bodies of athletes and especially black athletes in the United States are, are exploited, you know, from yep. everything from unpaid college athletes to, you know, all the brain damage that happens in, to NFL players. So I was curious how much of that was on your mind in this novel and, and, you know, what were you thinking about by placing the entertainment of sport at its center? Well, I, I'm also someone who loves sports, but I'm also someone who like basically doesn't watch the NFL anymore mm-hmm. because of how explicit the sort of commodification of the human beings who are, again, mostly people of color is in that context. We have this sort of sense that like, oh, they're making millions, so it's whatever. And it bothers me. Um, and a lot of that came to a head when Colin Kaepernick was trying to uh, make a statement about the extra extrajudicial murder of black people. Um, by the police and how he was subsequently um, blackballed from the NFL. So, yeah, it's, it's the sports space is one that, and I love it because I like the idea of people working on a craft, the the joining of the mind and body and working towards something. I think competition in the right context can be really healthy and help us much achieve a sort of mutual growth. But I think the again the commodification of things have soured things greatly. It really ends up being about money and not about the humanity of these people. It's not really even about their craft. It's about the drama and the money. It's about this. It's this telenovela that results in a lot of money for ultimately some billionaire. And um, there's always this moment that feels sort of sad where after the championship is done, the trophy. It's like not to LeBron. Here you go. Mr. Bus, like some white guy at the top mm-hmm. or a white woman at the top who's like, this is actually theirs. This whole thing is theirs. This stadium is theirs. And that's just okay. <laughs> and um, it ends up, it, 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 a, it just created a really useful model for me in terms of the profitizing of a spectacle. And um, so, yeah, sports were in my mind in a lot of ways. And I, again, as I say this as a sports fan, but uh, it ended up being a useful sort of paradigm for me to think about in creating the system that is changing all stars. Hmm. Another useful paradigm is NFL as telenovela. <laughs> I love that analogy. Yeah. It um, is though. That's what it is. That's what all these sports are now. Mm-hmm. No, totally. I just like, it struck me. And uh, another thing that struck me that you said earlier is that we're living in a kind of dystopia now, which of course I agree with you. And the novel is a dystopian novel. And we usually think of that as being futuristic, but this is like a warped vision of the present. So could you just speak about what you mean? Like dystopia happening now and what is your definition of dystopia and where it fits in? It's a good question. And, and to be honest, like this, whether it's dystopia, which is more like a sort of thematic genre and then other genre labels, I mostly identify with them after people have given them to me. (laughs) Yeah. I don't, I'm super grateful to be considered speculative, sci-fi realism, whatever people say, I'm like, cool. But dystopia, or the dystopic, to me, the way I think of dystopia is where there is widespread, um, unnecessary suffering administered in a way that is almost unavoidable. Where like the where like we are being controlled and by whether it's forces natural or unnatural um, that is causing great suffering. And by that definition, like surely, uh, dystopia is now. So that's how I think of it. Well, in closing, Nana, uh, since a big part of this podcast is exploring the writing process, I read in an interview that you compared writing to exercising. 
you said you have to change your workout schedule so your muscles don't get too familiar. You have to switch up your writing processes. And I myself like to write in varied forms. So I was curious about what it was like for you to go from writing short stories to the novel or just how you kind of uh, shake it up with your workouts. It was, um, <laughs> so I started a novel. I mean, it, it ended up feeling pretty different just because, um, I mean, I feel like I'm always getting by a project by like the skin of my teeth, doing whatever I can desperately to like somehow make it to the end. Um, but with the not with the short story, what I love about it, because I love revision so much, I can get a first draft relatively early. And I have stories even right now that are not out that I've been thinking about in the back of my mind or revising actively or some not actively, but semi actively for getting ready to be 10 years. And I feel very comfortable with that. With a novel, it's very hard to get into that state, which I prefer, which is the state when I'm in revision because it takes so long to get to even a draft. So it's a long trust fall, much longer trust fall. It's a lot of swimming with no shore in sight. And that was scary and very difficult. So it ended up being more about like that sort of med the meditative practice of actually getting the writing done. And I had to sort of, for a long time, I had to let go of that sort of part that so much longs for the revision and just be the creative person. Again, when you think about the process of making a book, you're, you're almost re becoming reborn every time because you're in this creative, just generative state for a while. Then for me, you're spending years in the revision state. Then you have to get back to be comfortable with the newness again. You have to feel comfortable going back to the generative place, which is uncomfortable because necessarily you've been reading a lot of much more polished stuff for maybe a long time. For me, for years. <laughs> so now you have to get, because if I remember when I was starting, I was, like, I was like, do I suck? Like, why do I suck at writing now? Then I was like, oh yeah, because I, I feel that way. Because not only have I been reading polished work, at that point I've been reading a finished book. You know, so you think I think of myself as the writer of Friday Black. But before the, the Friday Black, I'm the writer of How to Sell a Jacket, which is what Friday Black was called before that. And before that, I'm the writer of I don't know what the story is, but I think it's going to have a chainsaw. And, you know, and you have to like kind of remember writing comes in phases, at least for me. And so remembering, oh, wait, no, you aren't just a writer who made Friday Black. You're the writer who who was there in year one of the five years you got to get to Friday Black. And so re-falling in love with that generative, more exploratory, I don't know, person, that trust-falling era is um, was very difficult. But, you know, once you got there, it felt super um, – I was proud to have done it because it was, it was an ambitious project, and it, I'm, I'm sort of shocked it even exists. But, yeah, that le learning to remember – that there's phases and I have to remember it again because now I'm well, my next thing I have to be okay you have to go back to being a child back to a it's kind of like the beginner's mindset you have to kind of keep that up and that's that's beautiful but it's hard it's amazing it's always a new novel you're always starting something new and the you might have learned something in the last one but there's a whole new world to create a, you can't use the same tricks or else that would be the same you know that's what George says about for every every story Every story says you can't use what you did in the last one for me. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, this was wonderful to hear from you. Thank you. It's really been my pleasure. I appreciate it. We appreciate it, Nana. And congratulations. Thank you.
I'm so thrilled to have Ana Reyes on the show today. She has an MFA from Louisiana State University. Her work has appeared in Bodega, Pair Noir, The New Delta Review, and elsewhere. She lives in Los Angeles, where she teaches creative writing to older adults at Santa Monica College. The House in the Pines is her first novel, which happens to be a Reese Witherspoon book club pick. And Ana, uh, I also saw that your book recently hit the New York Times bestseller list. So congratulations and welcome. Thank you so much. It's totally surreal, but yes, I'm very excited about it. I bet. I bet. Uh, And the book is awesome. So I am excited for all of our listeners who haven't yet to check it out and read it because it's exciting. It's a psychological thriller. And The House in the Pines, the actual cabin that is at the center of this book was inspired by a cabin that you've been thinking about for a long time, I read, and you said that it's haunted your pages. And I was wondering if you could share more about that story and what associations do you have with this cabin? And was the novel an exercise in uncovering its meaning? Um, Yeah, absolutely. So the first time I wrote about this cabin was um, at the age of 11. And it was the first story I ever wrote. And it was for a a children's writing contest at the public library in Pittsfield, Massachusetts. So um, I wrote this story. I didn't know how to write a story, um, but I'd been reading a lot of Christopher Pike and R.L. Stein. Um, so I, I was a huge reader. So I just was like, okay, I'll just do what they do. <laughs> so I sat down and started writing and it was about this girl lost in the woods and she stumbles upon this cabin. I won't give talk about any more of that story because it would give away the twist. Um, but essentially that same cabin appeared again when I sat down to write this book. Um, it was my MFA thesis for, the, for grad school at LSU. And um, I, again, was not really sure how to write a book. I really wanted to write a book, but um, in the very beginning, I wasn't sure exactly what it was about. And the, the cabin appeared again. So a lot of the book was sort of built around that. And, and yeah, as you, said, as you mentioned, it sort of is an exploration of that place, not just as an actual place, but also as a symbol. It sounds like you shaped it and found the story in the writing of it, perhaps. Yeah. But, but I'm curious, since it was, you know, originally your MFA thesis, you know, did you did you shape it to be a psychological thriller from the start? Or was that something it became as you wrote more iterations of it and did more revisions? It was not a thriller at the start. It was um, it was sort of a magical realism um drama, I guess you could say. Um, It had more magical elements than the draft that we have now. Um, The draft that we have now is much more grounded in reality, but um, it was, yeah, it was not a thriller. And I finished writing it. I graduated. I took a year off from writing while I, you know, found a job and moved back to LA and just kind of got my life together. And I found an agent who was very generous with her time. And she read the book and she was like, you know, I think it's a great start, but I think it could be more more of a thriller. You know, you have creepy elements, there's some eerie things and scary moments, but it's not really a thriller. So she actually helped me um, as I rewrote it and reconfigured it and, and really learned how to write a thriller. I was a huge thriller reader, but for some reason I had this sense that to write a thriller, you kind of had to, I don't know, have some kind of training in thriller writing. Um, it didn't really make sense, but once I actually sat down and started writing it, I was like, oh, there's a very clear set of rules that go into writing a thriller. And, you know, if you read enough of them and you take notes and you read them in a sort of analytical mindset, you can learn to write a thriller. You can learn those tools, you know, pretty, it's a pretty straightforward process. 
It's really interesting because it's not the first time I've heard uh, of an agent sort of shaping something to be more of a thriller. And I'm I'm guessing that's for sales reasons, you know, that maybe they're easier to sell or that people really love them. Do you have a sense of that? I think that is probably true. I think it's probably an easier sell, um, just like selling the book to an editor in the first place. But I also think that there's something true about with a thriller, you have a question and that's going to keep people turning pages. So I think that... Um, it, it both makes it more commercial, but it also just makes for a, for a more engaging reading experience for the reader. And for the writer, it forces you to focus. It, it for, forces you to sort of think about um, what, what's the effect that I'm going for here when I write. And I think that that actually made for a much stronger and more um, focused book. That's interesting too. Yeah. And and for reasons that I don't want to disclose to our listeners, your protagonist, Maya, is not often completely present to the narrative, mm-hmm. even though she's your only narrator. And, you know, she doubts her truth at times and she's on medication and she's going through a lot that can cloud her judgment in various moments. And I'm really interested to know more about the considerations for writing an unreliable narrator in that way. And, and kind of in the vein of Grant's question, like, was that from the get-go or was that a necessary device for writing a thriller? It was there from the get-go that she was going through clonopin withdrawal, and that's because I was going through clonopin withdrawal when mm-hmm. I sat down to write the book. Um, this was, you know, just something that I didn't mean to for it to happen, but I found myself in the situation where I was cut off from the doctor who'd been prescribing it to me um, because of a move out of state. And I was just, in a lot of ways, writing... Um, sort of through that experience. And a lot of it ended up on the page and a lot of it's heightened, of course, for dramatic purposes, but a lot of what she goes through um, is what I went through. And as it, as I started um, telling the story and thinking about her as a character, I realized that it was actually a great quality for an unreliable narrator to go through because when you can't sleep and when you're going through these um, sort of neurological, you know, it's, it's just really an intense experience to go through clonopin withdrawal. And it does make you unreliable. Um, it makes you disoriented and it makes you question yourself, especially when you haven't slept for a long time. It's really easy to start thinking, you know, maybe this isn't clonopin withdrawal. Maybe it's me. Maybe there's something wrong with me. Um, so I felt unreliable at that time. And I think that that turned out to be perfect for my character. I'm so interested. Sorry, I'm, I'm a little bit preoccupied, um, Anna, with the with the whole um, journey that your novel took to find itself as a thriller, mm-hmm. and um, especially the, the the agent role in that as well. Because I'm thinking of that. The advice that I've always received when querying agents is to you know to to label your genre and, and to be like, yeah. I'm writing a thriller. I'm writing a romance. I'm, you know, and so I'm I'm just curious, especially since you came from an MFA program. Maybe I'm making the wrong assumption that it was literary fiction. But I'm, I'm just kind of curious how you found the agent and then did that presumption of genre change? And I guess it did. But then how, you, you started to touch on what you learned about, you know, you learned to write a thriller in the process of, of writing it, which I'm also interested in as well, because uh, authors generally kind of become the genre that they write in. Yeah. So this is a very long-winded rambling question. <laughs> so the first part of that question, I think, was how did I find the agent? And I went uh, sort of the traditional route that I had read about online. Um, and been advised by other writers, which is just send out query letters. So I didn't, I didn't know any agents, but I just kind of researched people who were writing books that I thought were really good and that were kind of in the vein of what I was trying to do. And, um, and I just queried people and I was very lucky to land with the person that I did because um, she never really said like, this needs to have a genre, 
but I think that sort of nudging me in the thriller direction or really just questioning, like, what if you turn this into a thriller and then sort of encouraging me along the way and being like, you can write a thriller, <laughs> you know, just read these, you know, she, she actually gave me reading uh, recommendations, different stories and different novels that she thought were really good examples of the form and that had those tools that I was trying to develop. Um, so I think there are probably a lot of agents who, you know, are looking to make the sale rather quickly. And for that reason, they're like, I want to know what this is, you know, from the very beginning, I want to, I want to be able to label the genre. But I, I think there's other people like the agent that I found who generally just want to help you tell a better story and the story that you want to tell. And that also tends to coincide with, with moving it into something more recognizable um, genre wise. Well, Anna, before you came on, Grant and I were talking about how important it is that authors have a good grasp on psychology to be able to write character motivations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so Maya's high school best friend in the book, Aubrey, wanted to be a psychologist or study psychology. And then Frank, your antagonist, um, his father studied the human mind. And there's just a lot about the mind in this book, including mental illness. So tell us about your personal interest in the human mind. I've always just thought it was fascinating. Um, I think that if I were to go back to school and say something different, it might be psychology because I just think it's so interesting. Um, and it does happen to sort of overlap a lot with um, narrative and writing. I think that when you have a story that has characters that seem real and are kind of um, recognizable in their psychology, people tend to relate to them more and therefore care about what happens to them. So then you have a story that people are engaged with on an emotional level, not just sort of a, a thinking level. So I think psychology is sort of present in any story that, that involves, you know, a novel, especially that involves people. And for me, I was just extremely interested in, in the particular aspects of psychology that Frank's father studies. Well, Anna, uh, in addition to being a psychological thriller, you, you mentioned that that the book started with with elements and maybe even more elements of magical realism. And you know, Maya's favorite book we noticed is like Water for Chocolate. So I'm curious how how difficult was it to execute the magical realism parts of the book? How did you balance it with the, with the addition of the thriller elements? The the magical realism elements were actually there first. So it, it, the um, evolution of this book actually involved pairing away some of that magical realism. So one thing that I think surprises a lot of people when I tell them is that um, Frank, in the original draft, the one that I wrote as my thesis, he did have some kind of magical power. It was subtle. It was, again, magical realism. So it was sort of that blending of the magical with um, grounded reality. But it was much, he was much more magical. And as I sort of sharpened him as a villain and made him more um, nefarious, gradually it became something that I, I, I found it would be scarier if he was a person who could actually, if, if he was doing something that a person could actually do. It's not likely, but you know, what he does is something that theoretically really could happen. So the magical elements were kind of stripped away little by little as I um, brought this book into focus. And to good effect, by the way. <laughs> you. It, that's, I think, also what makes it kind of scary, right, is that possibility that maybe this could happen. Um, and I wanted to note your name, Ana Reyes, uh, and you're, you center this kind of ambiguously ethnic character with a white mom and a Guatemalan dad who grew up in a super white town in Massachusetts. I couldn't actually find online whether you are half Guatemalan, but I wanted to ask you about it and, you know, what's special to you about the Guatemalan heritage, tradition, and folklore that are central and peripheral to Maya's experiences. 
Yeah. Um, so I am half Guatemalan, just like her. My mom is um, American or my mom's white and my dad is from Guatemala. He's still alive, unlike the dad in my book, um, thankfully. But he came here when he was 11 years old. So I think I've always um, like my character. I grew up hearing stories about Guatemala more so than my character because I would hear them from my dad and from my grandparents. And they talked about this country, their homeland in these glowing terms, but also sad things that happened there as a result of the civil war and the reason that they left. So I had all these ideas about Guatemala growing up, but it wasn't until I was 17 and I went there for the first time that I actually met the people, my side of the family that lives there. So there was a lot of sort of like expectation and imagination versus reality that I experienced. And so that was something that it was very natural for me to write about with Maya. She kind of goes through a similar journey um, of self-discovery in her teen years. So, um, so yeah, tell, writing about Guatemala felt very natural and felt like a part of her that um, I really understood and related to. Well, thank you for sharing that. It's an awesome book. We're really happy for you for your success and wish you the very best as you continue to tour and get this book out into the world. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks again, everyone, and happy August. We have three more mashup episodes for you to carry us through the rest of the summer. We appreciate you all and hope you're enjoying your summer. And we'll be back with new episodes the very first week of September. That's right. Thanks, everyone. We do hope you're having fun in the sun. Though some places the sun is so hot that it's a blurring oven, so we know that's not so fun. But we are wishing you all some peace and downtime and relief this summer. So until next week. Mm-hmm.